Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. This week on Miranda Warnings, we have Rick Riley, the author of Commander and Cheat, How Golf Explains Trump. Welcome, Rick. I've never been on a lawyer's podcast. Well, I, I should read you your rights. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a setup. <laughs> Rick, you were also the back page columnist for, for Sports Illustrated for 20 years with Life of Riley. And uh, you were National Sports Writer of the Year 11 times. Well, who's counting? Well, and did, and all those awards were without cheating, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to cheat in sports writing. You've got to actually tell the truth. Facts actually matter in sports. Uh, is, I know it's an, that's an old-time concept. <laughs> the idea that, that uh, we're inventing truth as we go, your truth versus my truth. But actually in sports, uh, I never tried to write about sports. I always tried to write about people. And I would hang it on the thinnest of sports threads. There's nothing more boring than a column about, or even a sports movie, about who won who lost. The, the, best, the best columns in sports movies are about what was gained, who really um, was the hero, who was not, who overcame some obstacle, whether they won or lost. And that's kind of how I like to write sports. Right, and, and you dedicated your book to the truth, which was nice. The truth does not often get a dedication. Um, <laughs> True. You say you say at the beginning of your book uh, that you're you're not political, you're not part of the resistance, but uh, you know about golf. And why did you write this book about uh, Trump's relationship with golf? Because I love golf, and he's wrecking. He's driving on the greens. He's lying about his handicap by not just a shot or two, by seven, eight shots. He's saying he won tournaments he never even played in. He's saying he won tournaments that were never held. He's saying he won club championships, which is the hardest tournament to win at any club. When really, he won the Super Seniors Club Championship, which is fine. But like in my club, you got to be over 70, you know, or 65. He's just... He's just painting a big orange blotch on this game I love, which is, look, my, I was taught the game was about integrity and you'd rather lose every match than cheat because in golf, it's so big. The space is so huge. It's the very easiest game to cheat at. Anybody can cheat at golf and pretty easily, but it's, but we don't, we don't cheat each other because it's a game of integrity. My dad always said that. Well, you it's know, a game for gentlemen. Well, and then he just, he cheats. Like he cheats like a three-card money dealer. You indicate in your book, of course, and anybody who plays golf, and a lot of lawyers do, know that golf is about personal honor and honesty. It's self-regulated. There's no umpires. There's no referees, which makes uh, this type of uh, the cheating that you describe uh, all the more egregious. Because as you indicate, you know, when you cheat, you're really only cheating yourself uh, out of uh, the enjoyment of the game. For instance, um, he never gets better. He says he's a 2.8. He's probably about a 10 or 11 and getting worse. He never gets better because he instructs his caddies to kick the ball out of the rough, or he does, throw it out of the bunker before he, he always has the caddies way ahead, uh, throw it out of lakes. So you know what that means? That means he never 
learns to hit those shots. He never learns to hit a good bunker shot. He can't chip to save his life. But the reason he can't chip is because he never works at it. He never has those shots because the caddies literally throw it on the green or he'll throw it on the green if he doesn't think anybody's looking. <laughs> Worse than that, see what your lawyers think of this, he not only cheats to play better, he kicks your ball in the bunker so you play worse. What kind of mind is this? <laughs> now you you've actually you like, you've actually it's just pl- golf, but it really does matter how you are. It should totally reveals who you are inside. And and so in your assessment, uh, in looking at his uh, his golf game, who is Trump inside? What's your insight into him as a person? It's a guy who has to win no matter what. He has to be number one. His courses have to be the best in the world. He has to have the lowest handicap. By, right now, by the way, he, he pretends to have a handicap that's lower than Jack Nicholas. <laughs> he, he has to pretend his courses are ranked and the best in the world, and they're really not even in the top. There's not one in the top 160 in America. He has to pretend that he's won all these championships for the old boat farm. So you can say, even with me, when he, the day I played with him, he took mulligans, he took a gimme chip in, he picked up every putt, and then he goes around and tweets about how he beat my ass. So I, I, I've issued this statement before, and I'll do it in front of all the lawyers. I'm betting him 100 grand. If he plays his 2.8 and I get my 6.0, and we don't use one of his cheaty courses with his cheaty caddies, and there's a USGA official with each of us, I'll bet you I can beat him. And I think I would smoke him because... He can't play without cheating. Do you realize as president, he's never played on a single course that he doesn't own. But when you own the course, you get to put your name up on the wall for tournaments you never played in. You get to have the best caddies who know how to cheat for you. And you win every bet. And then you buy all the lunch, which is gracious and stuff. But it doesn't matter. You've already cheated your friends. And I think that's despicable. So now when you played with, you played around with Trump, uh, uh, before this book, did you call no cheating before you started? <laughs> no, because I didn't know what, what it was like. <laughs> well, what was it like? Take it, take it, take, take us through it, because there is a lot of interesting things just about how he uh, conducts himself uh, on the course. Take us through what what it's like to to play around with with Donald Trump. <laughs> well, first of all, I come to his office and he, and up at the top of Trump Tower. And he says, look at this. And he slaps down a laminated card. And it says, uh, Bear eats free at any McDonald's in the world. And he said, only nine people in the world have this. Michael Jordan, Mother Teresa, and me. All of a sudden, it was three instead of nine. I'm like, really? So you expect me to believe Mother Teresa has this card, and she's wheeling her gremlin through the McDonald's drive through and <laughs> ordering 10,000 chicken sandwiches? Get serious. So I call him on it all the time, but he doesn't care. He just moves on to the next slide. So he lies about himself. And then we ride in the limo with Melania and uh, his daughter Tiffany by uh, Marla, who had her headphones on the whole time. And we get there. And the whole time he's lying about himself and how great his courses are and what a great player he is and how much money he made and blah, blah, blah. So then he starts introducing me around. And now I'm Rick Riley, managing editor of Sports Illustrated. I'm like, no, I'm just a writer. Now, Rick Riley, me, me, Rick Riley, he's the publisher of SI. I'm like, no, I'm just a writer. So I pulled him aside and said, why are you lying about me? And he goes, it sounds better. 
<laughs> so then we played, and he had this cheaty caddy, and he cheated. But he'd do the funniest things, like he'd yell at certain groundskeepers if he didn't like what they were doing, and then he'd tip other people he thought were doing well. Like these three guys were had rebuilt a, a cart path he didn't like, and they were doing a good job. So he gets out of the cart, gives them each 50 bucks, and gets back in the cart. <laughs> and then he goes, uh, now they're the Donald Trumps of Puerto Rico. <laughs> okay. Because they have $50, I guess. And anyway, it was all, you know, oh, you talk. Oh, the birds swoop too low. Oh, you're in the hole for a four. I guess this chip is good. Like, we're playing a total score bet. How? Do, what are you doing? But by then, he'd already picked up the chip. I've never even heard of that. I played golf my whole life. And by the end, he shot, said he shot 78. I shot 82 or something. And all of a sudden, it was over. I remember at the end of the day, he goes, uh, I go, Donald, do you want to do it again tomorrow? Because it was great copy from my book. Um, the current book is Commander-in-Chief. But this book was called uh, Who's Your Caddy? <laughs> I said, do you want to do it tomorrow? And he goes, you know, for most people, one day of me is enough. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I believe that, buddy. Well, that's a surprisingly self-reflective uh, statement to make. That's the only time I've heard him be actually humble. So in your book, in addition to talking about um, about Trump, you talk about some of the other presidents uh, and their relationship with golf. Um and, and you go through, uh, I think for many of them who played golf, you go through a little bit about each of them, and you've played with some of them. Um, in your opinion, which president was the best golfer during their time in office um, without cheating? Well, maybe Trump. Maybe Trump. <laughs> that's, what I would, that's, that's what I don't get, Dave. I don't get it. Why does he have to lie? Why does he have to cheat? You know, only about 3% of people over 70 are are single digits. And I'd say he's a 9 or a 10 handicap. That's pretty dang good for a 72-year-old. Why does he got to tell people he's the best of all the rich people when we know he isn't? Because he's played on TV and he's been terrible. He played in seven Pebble Beaches and he was terrible. He played in three Lake Tahoes and he was terrible. Why does he got to lie and say he's just fantastic? Why is he going to say he won tournaments when he didn't? I mean, so he's he's probably the, the best for his... I mean, John Kennedy was good, but he hit it. Like, right after he was... Um, when he was running for president, he, he nearly made a hole-in-one at 16 at Cyprus, which is probably the greatest part three in the world. No, unquestionably. And he almost made it. And his buddies were yelling for it to go in. And he turned to them and said... You're going to kill a great political career because he didn't want to be known as a golfer because he was replacing Eisenhower, who took a lot of crap for playing too much golf. Um, I don't know if you remember back in the day, they used to have these bumper stickers, Hogan for president. If we're going to have a golfing pre golfer for president, let's have a good one. Right. And so, uh, but the best golfer by far was FDR. Before he got polio, he was a champion golfer and he didn't cheat. He, they have actual scorecards of the tournaments and club championships he won. He was a terrific athlete. He was probably a one or two handicap legitimately as a young man. And then he got polio and they couldn't play, of course. But those those three are our best golfing presidents. 
Yeah, I think that was remarkable to hear about FDR because obviously you don't hear that much about his athletic ability uh, because of the condition that he had later in life. But uh, it turns out that he was a, a tremendous athlete and, and uh, as you indicated, one of the greatest uh, golfing presidents that we've, uh, that we've had. So that was, all, that was very also, interesting. Also, uh, people are surprised to hear that Trump wouldn't even be close to playing the most golf as a president. He would probably come in third, number one by far, Woodrow Wilson, who was told by his doctor he needed to get a hobby or he was going to die. And uh, so he took up golf. He was terrible at it, but he played it every morning, just about. Uh, and he would be back at his desk by 9.30. He would only play nine holes. But he'd be, and he'd play the local course. You know, the, Trump never plays the local course. He always drives for 45 minutes out to Trump, Washington, or he flies to Mar-a-Lago. But Wilson would play every day, even in the snow. He, he got he painted his balls orange to play in the snow. Um, this is Wilson. So he had the most, Wilson. They, Wilson painted his. Yeah, what? Yeah. Yeah, what about Wilson? They think he played somewhere between twelve hundred and sixteen hundred times. It looks like Trump will average out at about six hundred. Uh, Eisenhower was probably second. He probably played eight hundred times, which is that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of golf. And Obama doesn't even come close to these guys. Obama will end up, end up playing. By the time Trump's done, I think if Trump goes eight years, he'll he'll have played three times the amount of golf Obama played. They played completely differently, by the way. Trump is very long off the tee and kind of wild. Uh, Obama's dead straight. I mean, he needs one pass on a lawnmower, and he's in the fairway. And uh, plays strictly by the rules. I know because he plays with... Um, sports writer buddies of mine, Michael Wilbon and Tony Kornheiser. And he plays strictly by the rules. Trump has never even heard of the rules. And you have no idea what you shot. And he plays very fast. You're done in three hours. Kind of like the Bushes. Both Bush 41 and 43 played incredibly fast. They, what they really cared about was not the score, but what time it took to play the round. You go into, uh, I'm going to say, pretty substantial detail uh, about the financial aspects of how Trump runs his golf courses. Uh, tell us about uh, what you referred to as uh, a Ponzi scheme regarding his uh, membership initiation fees. Well, I'm not sure if it's a Ponzi scheme. I said, could it be? Because in golf, until Trump came along, let's say you, Dave, or you, you joined a club, the... Uh, you know, Club Cofessi, right, somewhere in New York. And it costs you hundred grand to join. And you sign a contract that says, uh, okay, I'll give you the hundred grand, but it's an equity membership. That means when you're done and sick of it, you can quit. And as long as there's someone to take your place, you get your hundred grand back. But Trump has taken over golf courses, and they've all had this exact same deal I described, but he won't honor it. Like, uh, he took over a course in Jupiter, Florida with the Rich Carlton. And there was about 250 guys um, that uh, had, were, were going to get, it was, about, it was about 150 grand back. And uh, Trump goes, uh, hey, uh, guess what? I'm taking over here. It's going to be called Trump uh, Jupiter, and you'll get your money back no matter what. And they're like, what? We signed a contract. No, nah, that's not the way I read the contract. And uh, you're not getting the money back. And they're like, what? And so 200 of them just took it up the rear and said, okay, 
I guess we don't get our money back. But 50 of them said, screw you, we're suing. And they found a um, a little one-desk lawyer in Fort Lauderdale to take the case. And I talked to him. He said, you know, you rarely get a case where it's just like, this is too good to be true. These people have a signed contract that they get their 250 grand back. And this could, so he got to depose the sitting president of the United States and he won. He won all these guys their money back plus damages. Trump appealed. He won again. And when they asked him and Eric Trump, why, how can you not see the contract? It's written right here. Well, we don't think that's what it means. So he's done this a lot of times. So if you have, say, 400 members at 100 grand each, that's what, $40 million? Yeah. So he suddenly has $40 million. No wonder he's buying golf courses because he's changing the rules. Now, if something comes, happens to the course, like a team of locusts comes in and wrecks the course, he's not going to have any money because he takes that $40 million and puts it towards the next thing. He buys wineries and hotels. And I'm not convinced this is legal or illegal. I wish somebody smart like you guys would figure it out. But in a way, it sort of resembles a Ponzi scheme. You you just keep getting money and then spending it. And if they ever all need it at once, you're screwed. You talk a little bit about the, the Trump design of his courses and that there's, you know, there was this common theme throughout the book and, and the courses where he would insist on including waterfalls uh, in, in every, no matter how beautiful the course was already, uh, it could be made more beautiful by two or three more uh, waterfalls, which... Uh, Have you ever had a friend, because I've been to Trump's house, I've been to the apartment. Have you ever had a friend you're like, this guy has the worst taste in decorating I've ever seen. That's Trump. Like, in the Trump Tower, I went, I went down to where he lives in the apartment, uh, or the apartment, and uh, it's all gold faucets and the crystal this and ornate crap, Baroque this. And he had this beautiful, long, white uh, Steinway piano. It was the most beautiful thing in the room, uh, except that when I played it, because I played piano, it was completely out of tune. It just was there for like, I remember he had this gold telescope in the corner. And he and I'm looking through the telescope and he goes, I watched the towers fall down through that telescope. And I pulled my head away. I'm like, oh my God. And he goes, yeah, it's all gold. Well, that's, that sort of tastelessness is what he brings to golf courses. He built these big giant Tom Fazio golf courses and and then slaps a giant waterfall on all of them. And I asked Fazio, you don't really like those waterfalls, do you? And he goes, no, I hate them, but he pays, so what do I care? But they ruin the golf. You can't even hear yourself talking. You're 100 foot, the next one's 105, the next one's 110. You're trying to, well, are you away? I'm away. What? Yeah, nice day. You have no idea what what people are talking about. You get wet as you leave because there's so there's splashing everywhere. And then he has the gall to say that these courses, which is just like, look at me, look how rich I am, are among the best in the world when really they're gaudy. They're, they're, they're the uh, 
you know, they're, they're like going to a casino and walking around inside a casino. They're gaudy and ugly and showy. And they're exactly what Trump wants. And you do you do quite a bit of uh, uh, discussion about uh, where his courses actually rank, um, and none of them are in you know the top hundred in the in the U.S. at least. And there's uh, quite a humorous chapter about how Trump was lobbying you know the golf magazines to uh, to bump his courses up uh, in the rankings, and and then threatening to remove his all his courses from any of the rankings if he didn't get what he wanted. Right, because Trump, well, like his TV thing, it was always about how my ratings every day, how are my ratings, right? And this is what drives him crazy about Hillary winning the popular election. He hated that because he's, you know, he's borderline psychotic. And so he's got to win at everything. And so, oh, I actually won, actually won, but the system was rigged. So in golf, we rank courses. So, there's a top 200 U.S., there's a top 200 world, the Bible of it is Golf Digest. And basically, in America, he can't break an A. His best course is Trump Bedminster, where he goes all the time. That's about 156. And yet, when someone asks him to make the top 10 courses in the world, or in America, he picks five of his own, even though they're horrid. They're not even close. I mean, they're not horrible courses, but they're just big, gaudy pieces of crap. That you get bored. I mean, the one out here, Trump Los Angeles, you're bored after six holes. So he he bullies people. He threatens to take away ads from the magazines. You know, Golf Week does it. Golf Magazine, a lot of magazines rank. And he just can't stand when his courses. So he'll say, I'm going to pull out my ads. Or he'll even like, hey, if you rank mine number one, I'll hire you. I mean, just try to bribe people. And it's never worked, and his courses are always, you know, in the not not ranked highly at all. Now, in Europe, he does have one great course, Turnberry, which is incredible, and it's always been incredible. He's actually made it better, but mostly of his 19 courses, they're big, brassy, showy pieces of nothing. What do you think of uh, Tiger Woods accepting the uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Trump? Well, Tiger, uh, I don't think she'd do it, but I understand how hard it would be to turn it down because any president from here on in is going to probably give Tiger Woods the Presidential Medal of Freedom. But the problem is uh, Trump once cheated Tiger Woods in a match he hit two balls, two balls in the water, and then told Tiger he was putting for a four when they were betting. Um, Tiger has gone is the, on. Is that the time? Is that, is that the time where he said yeah, he, he thought? Is that the time where he said he thought the tide brought it in after he <laughs> hit it in the water? He did that in Los Angeles. Yeah, <laughs> he, he hits foot in the water, and as usual, he hits his he jumps in a super rigged golf cart where they mess with the governor, and it goes fifty miles an hour. <laughs> and so he's down there by the time they get down to the ball, it's back in the fairway and they were playing a money game. And they said, Donald, what the hell? And he goes, I don't know. It must've been the tide or something. <laughs> so this, yeah. No, this is a different time where he knocks two balls in the water, but Tiger doesn't see. And then he drops from in front of the lake, knocks it on. And then Tiger's in there for a birdie, but Trump's getting a shot. And Tiger said, what are you putting for? And he said, four. So, <laughs> I can't believe that he would be all that excited about a guy trying to cheat him. But the worst part is, 
the most hypocritical part on Tiger's part is Trump believes golf is only a sport for the rich people. He said it three times publicly that golf should be a sport where you aspire to play golf. And the only way to do that is to make enough money to join a golf club, a country club. He doesn't believe in the first tee. He doesn't believe. And so if that's true, then why does Tiger have the Tiger Woods Foundation, which teaches golf and learning to people of color, to people at risk kids, kids who uh, are disadvantaged, because he thinks golf matters. Tiger Woods, more than any golfer we've ever had, has brought the game to people of color, to people of all over the world. I mean, he changed the whole way the world looks at golf. And now this guy, he's going to take an award from this guy who doesn't think poor people or the middle class deserve golf? I mean, how can you do that? Rick, uh, I want to change gears a little bit and ask you about just sports writing in general. You left uh, Sports Illustrated in 2008 to write a column for a similar column for ESPN magazine and do some other things uh, with ESPN. Uh, ESPN just announced that it's discontinuing the print version of its magazine. Is there still a market today for the type of sports essays that you made your career on? No. I don't think there's... there's I don't think people have the, it's just a different time. I mean, you know, I would, I remember covering Jack Nichols in 86 and the thing ended on Sunday and my story didn't come out until Thursday, the cover story on Nichols coming from behind at 46 years old to win the Masters. I mean, and yet I have had still people come up to me and talk to me about that story. There wasn't much, there wasn't that savor factor where you'd like, Oh, I can't wait to, wait, to, wait to read SI and see what they said and see the pictures. You know, there was just there was just the USA Today, your local paper, and SI, and it really mattered. And it was much harder to become a sports writer. Whereas now, I would say we have ten times the sports writers we used to have. We have a lot of really bad sports writing. We have some good, lots of good sports writing. Much harder to find. And the problem is. By, the, by Monday morning, everyone knows everything about it. So, you know, to, to, to put, still put out a magazine that, you know, takes a, takes four days to print and ship, it just seems like buggy whips, you know what I mean? But do you think there's a there's room for the stories, for the drama that goes behind uh, some of these uh, victories and successes and failures? Uh, more than just, you know, what the latest result is and what the score is. Um, I mean, of many course, of your that's stories. I've been living for 40 years. I mean, I did those pieces on TV for ESPN. That was really fun. Wrote them when people still read <laughs> in Sports Illustrated. Now I'm writing a screenplay. There's all kinds of vehicles for great stories about people and what they've overcome and, and how, how sports was a vehicle for them to achieve and, or not, or cheat people or ruin their lives or make their lives. There's a million stories out there, but I, I, I thought you were asking me, is there room anymore for a Sports Illustrated or ESPN magazine? And I don't think there is. Well, Rick Riley, author of Commander in Cheat, I want to thank you for being on Miranda Warnings. We have a feature here on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie, where you can share with us <laughs> any sort of artistic performance that means something to you, whether related to this or or not. And I know you've been involved in movies yourself as a, as a screenwriter. 
Um, is there anything that you want to share with us? Have you read City of Thieves uh, by the guy? He's one of the two writers of Game of Thrones. Hmm. And it is a gripping, funny, terrifying tale of the, um, the when Stalingrad got surrounded and um, Stalingrad and um, <laughs> this guy is going to die, uh, going to get shot in the morning, and he says, "But, but, then, but he's a scrounger, and he can." Uh, and the general's daughter is about to get married. If he can scrounge up twelve eggs for the for the wedding cake, they'll let him live. And it's it's harrowing. It's amazing. It's the best book I've read I've read in uh, five years. And so uh, I recommend it's called City of Thieves. City of Thieves. Okay, thank you. Rick Riley, thank you for being on Miranda Thanks, Warnings. Dave. Thank you for dedicating your book to the truth. And thanks for being with us. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.